This episode was recorded on the country of the Wadjuk people of the Noongar Nation. Wadjuk country is in southwest Western Australia. It includes Perth, Fremantle, Joondalup, Wanderwee, Bullsbrook and Chidlow. I wish to acknowledge the strength of the continuing culture of the Noongar people and offer my respects to Elders past and present. This is Weekend Birder, which continues to feature as one of Australia's top 10 science nature podcasts. Very exciting. I'm your host, Kirsty Costa. As the weather warms up, shorebirds start to arrive in Australia from across the world. As I've grown my love of bird watching, I've become a bit of a shorebird fangirl. And so have listeners Marcus, Christy, Joey and Helen, who have all requested this episode topic. I'm thrilled that Jeremy Ringmar is here to help us better understand and identify these amazing birds. He is a shorebird project coordinator for BirdLife WA. Here's how Jeremy grew his interest in bird watching. I probably first started bird watching properly when I was a kid, around about five or six years old. I didn't really know that it was called bird watching at the time. I think I've just always been into birds. So yeah, definitely from like from the get-go, I was I'd see a bird, I'd go and try and figure out what it was. Stuff like the eastern coels that used to uh, come down into my yard when I grew up in Brisbane. Uh, sort of like, I mean, if you'd hear something, I'd have had this natural curiosity. It's like I'd hear something and I'd have to go and try and figure out what it was. That's sort of like very, really early childhood memories, bird watching type of behavior. To actually sort of say the sort of like I'm a bird, became a bird watcher in the classical sense of what we probably would commonly define as a bird watcher, I think that probably started in my early 20s when I was in undergrad. That's the great thing about university is it's, it concentrates people who have similar interests to you in the same spot. So yeah, the actual sort of like idea that you could go out for a day with a pair of binoculars, spend time deliberately looking for a bird. And so this was a common, a common thing that people did. I don't think really it was introduced to me until around about then. Jeremy completed his studies at the University of Queensland. He did his PhD under Richard Fuller, whose shorebird research has influenced Australian government policy and bird protection. Even though my PhD topic wasn't on shorebirds, there were three or four other PhD students and postdocs in his research group doing shorebird work. So I'd often go out and sort of help other PhD students with their fieldwork and honours students with their fieldwork, which meant that I got two, three years of just soaking in other people's um, fieldwork projects. So that's sort of how I got into shorebirds. And then from there, uh, I did a series of postdocs, left Brisbane, moved to Hawaii for a couple of years, um, came back, spent a year in Melbourne, and then my partner got offered a job with DBCA in Perth. And I was wrapping up a couple of projects and knocked on the door at the local bird life office and said, I'm here and I'm going to be unemployed in six months. If there's any projects that you think might fit me, then let me know. And at the time, the um, Western Australian coordinator, Vicky Stokes, said, we've literally got a grant in for shorebirds at the moment and we'll find out in a couple of months. If um, we get the grant and you, should, and you know stuff about shorebirds, you should apply. So, and that it all kicked off from there. It's about four years ago. So my job is a, it's a mixture of sort of like Research science, science communication, data management, public outreach. One of the big things that we try and do as part of the Shorebird program at BirdLife is to 
coordinate the annual census. Um, so that a lot of what I do builds up to generating a volunteer base and generating um, a level of coordination which allows for the annual census to happen each year in January. So that's sort of like, that's the backbone which we build our program around. Jeremy is here to give us a general overview of shorebirds. He is then going to share some shorebird watching tips and tell us about one of his favourite birds. And then in future Weekend Birder episodes, we are going to get to know some other shorebirds in more detail. A bird order is a group of birds that share similar characteristics and features, like owls or parrots. Shorebirds belong to an order which is pronounced Tarajiforms or Karajiformes, depending on where you are in the world. These birds in this order live near water and eat invertebrates or other small animals. Taxonomy is the science of categorising living things by their physical, behavioural and genetic characteristics. Shorebirds include plovers, lapwings, sandpipers, tattlers, curlews, godwits, snipes, oyster catchers, stilts, avocets and jacana. This is a huge range of birds and as a whole taxonomical group, Jeremy says that it's really tricky to classify shorebirds easily. There's groups, there's taxonomic groups that have stuff in common. So the plovers have stuff in common, the cyanpipers have stuff in common, you've got your stilts that have stuff in common. But there's, yeah, as an all-encompassing group, they're actually quite speciose and they're quite diverse. And the, if we dive into the, the nitty-gritty details again, within order Teradriformes, it's not one branch which split off and became shorebird. It's actually like broken up. That's what I mean when I was saying it's both sort of behavioral and taxonomic, which defines it. It's not just, yeah, one group of Teradriforms split off and became shorebirds. Um, there's little, so stuff like a plains wanderer um, is technically a shorebird, even though it lives in a grassland, Victoria, New South Wales. Definitely a little bit more complex than just these are honey eaters or these are ibis. Yeah, it's a little bit too speciose for that. It's often better to work out what, once you sort of know that taxonomic breakdown, what isn't a shorebird. So we know that there's things that are using the, the mudflat and the wetland habitats like herons and ibis and cormorants and all these sorts of things, those things aren't shorebirds. The things that are shorebirds are your stilts, your snipes, odwits and sandpipers and plovers. So there's a you know, once you sort of get a feel about what is a shorebird, um, it sort of makes a little bit more sense. It's not everything that's using the shoreline is a shorebird. Um, and then not every single shorebird is using the shoreline. It's super variable. That's the this issue that we come across with this clustering. So we do have long legs. We've got short legged ones. We've got long built. We've got short beaks. Some of them are colourful. Um, some of them are plain and brown. The ones that are plain and brown are colourful later on in the season as they're um, coming into breeding plumage. Generally speaking, you're you're not going to see a shorebird perched up in a tree with like a clasping claw structure. I'm pretty sure no shorebird species do have a, a hide opposable toe. I'll have to look that up properly to make sure because there's always an exception. So they don't have webbed feet like ducks. So there's lots of different little little bits and pieces. There are over 200 species of shorebirds worldwide. 18 species live in Australia all year round. They are called resident shorebirds. An additional 36 species regularly migrate here from their breeding grounds in the Northern Hemisphere. They are called migratory shorebirds. So there's two different types, resident shorebirds and migratory shorebirds. There are also 24 species that sometimes travel to Australia, and they are called vagrant shorebirds. 
many migratory shorebirds like to hang out along Australia's coast and in freshwater wetlands. They spend the summer here to escape the northern hemisphere winter. They rest and eat lots and lots of food so that they have enough energy to travel the long distance back to their breeding grounds in the north. Jeremy says that watching and identifying shorebirds can be tricky because they don't have their brightly coloured breeding feathers when they're in Australia and most like to keep their distance from humans. So he's got two great tips to help you. The first thing to sort of think about with shorebirds is because they are far away from you often, they're going to, you're going to have problems with sizes. So the reference, your reference of how big is that shorebird might be difficult. There's two size comparisons that we like to do when we're working on shorebird ID. The first of all is comparing the bird to another bird. And then the other one is comparing the bird to itself. If you've got a Australian white ibis standing on a mudflat and then you've got a shorebird sitting next to it, you can go, well, that's definitely a white ibis. Um, I've got no doubts about that. Now I've got a bird that I can compare it to size-wise. Um, and that's going to help get you sort of like broadly to what group that bird might be in. So whether it's a, a sandpiper or whether it's a tattler or whether it's a godwit, um, you've got those sort of small, medium, large splits that you can then go go on and sort of work on your ID for. And then the second thing that you can do is compare the bird to itself. So does it have relatively short legs and we can use its body features. So like if you look at the depth of the bird's body, how long are the legs compared to the depth of its body? How long is its bill compared to the size of its head? Um, how long is its neck? All these sorts of features. So those are ways of almost, if you were to remove all of the color from the bird and just look at it as a silhouette, what are the proportions of the bird? Um, and that's going to get you starting to move in the right direction to saying, this is a sandpiper, this is a godwit, this is a stint. From there, then you can start to go into the fine to features in terms of what the actual species is within that group. That's great advice from Jeremy. Look at the bird's size compared to the others hanging out nearby or the birds that you already know, and then look at the size and details of its body features. Jeremy says that you can use this technique to identify some of the common shorebird species seen in Australia. So the birds that you're going to be most commonly encountering are going to be your, your resident species and your regular migrants. Within that group of residents and, reg and regular mi migrants, you can go out onto given wetland or a given intertidal mudflat, very realistically uh, encounter 15, 20 odd species of birds. So um, they, if you have good habitat, it can be very speciose. Common species that you're going to encounter, so stuff like redneck stints, the smallest regularly encountered shorebirds, so they're a teeny tiny little migrant about the size of a Mars bar. Bird-wise, probably a sparrow um, so about the size of a sparrow as a regular common bird that you're comparing it to. So they're our smallest one. Um, and then we're going to go all the way up to a far eastern curlew, which is basically a three quarters of the size of an ibis with the same shape and a long-term bill. Um, and then everything in between, pied stilts or black wing stilts, depending on which taxonomy you're going to be coming across. Um, that's a really, really common uh, resident shorebird species. Um, and then within our plover group, we've got Mars lapwings, banded lapwings, they're resident species, black-fronted dotterel and red-capped plovers, again, really common resident species. And then within that group, you've got stuff like greater and lesser sand plover, which is what you're going to, some of your more tricky regular migrants that you might have to start to tease apart. Get yourself a, a bird ID book, and if you flick to the shorebird section, 
you can run through and you can see all the ones which are shorebirds. BirdLife makes a really nice little resource that if you go down to your BirdLife branch, they'll probably have a copy of them for sale. Um, or if you go and do a training workshop, we give them away and it's a list of all of the different shorebird species. I've added to the show notes a link to BirdLife Australia's shorebird identification booklet. It's really useful and easy to use. For example, the sharp-tailed sandpiper travels to many parts of Australia. This bird would be much easier to identify with its breeding colours, but in Australia we only get to see its duller coloured feathers. I often get it confused with the pectoral sandpiper, which is much less common but can be found in my area as well, and it's only one centimetre larger. BirdLife's booklet has helped me realise that the sharp-tailed sandpiper, also known as a sharpie, often has dark streaks on its tail and it has these ginger-coloured feathers on its crown. The pectoral sandpiper has no streaks on its tail, no ginger crown, and it has this yellowish colour at the base of its bill. It's learning these one to two unique characteristics that will help you better identify shorebirds. Instead of focusing on the whole bird, just choose a few little things to look out for. That identification booklet is going to help you do that. And you can also learn more about mast lapwings and red cap plovers in Weekend Birder episode 13 with Dr. Crystal Kostakoglu. Shorebirds are often in the news because of the long distances they fly between Australia and other countries. Here's a bit more information about shorebird migration from Jeremy. It's a bit of a misnomer saying that our resident shorebirds are non-migratory because many of them migrate within Australia. Banded stilt uh, will often come into tidal salt flats on the coast and that's where they'll be hanging out for a large portion of the year feeding um, and then all of a sudden we'll have a big rainfall event in a salt lake somewhere in central Australia and then they'll go and breed. Uh, so yeah, they're still traveling thousands of kilometers in order to breed, but they're not doing this regular summer-winter migration to the Northern Hemisphere. So our migratory species in Australia travel up something that's called the East Asian Australasian Flyway. New Zealand and then the southern end of Australia is sort of the far southern terminus. Um, and then they'll travel all the way up through Southeast Asia, through China, Japan, Korea, and that's sort of like their one of their major staging areas. And then they'll finish off their migration in the Arctic tundra in either Russia or Alaska. One of Jeremy's favourite shorebirds is the bar-tailed godwit. What a great name for a bird. This species recently set a distance world record. There's actually two different subspecies of bar-tailed godwit, um, and that's split by whether they breed in Alaska or whether they breed in Russia. So these godwit species, they're a large weight of species with a long to slightly upturned bill, and you'll see them out in intertidal mudflats and they're probing deep down in the mud. So they're very distinct. They're a relatively easy shorebird for beginners to identify because they are so large and they do have this distinctive long bill. And godwit species are relatively easy to catch and they're relatively large for a shorebird, which makes them really well suited to put a tracking device on so we can see what they're doing on migration. So um, ever since uh, we've basically been doing tracking studies of shorebird. Bar-tailed godwits have been sort of like a really cool focal species that we've been looking at. So ever since probably, I think maybe the late 90s, early 2000s, people have been putting various different versions of trackers on bar-tailed godwits to see what they do on migration. The, in the southern hemisphere is their non-breeding part of their distribution, and then the northern part of the hemisphere is where they breed. So we've got different researchers in different parts of the world putting trackers on different birds. So in Australia, we're putting trackers on typically adult birds, 
Um, and then in the Northern Hemisphere in the breeding areas, you have researchers putting them on younger fledgling birds. So recently, about 12 months ago now, uh, there was a young Bartow Godwit. These birds undergo the migration for the first time um, in their life and they're traveling back south and they don't actually know where they're going. They have an idea, they have this genetically inherited notion that they should be traveling south, but they don't really know exactly what they're going to do and what the plan is because the, the adult Bartow Godwits and the adult shorebirds generally will actually leave the fledgling shorebirds early and they'll migrate before the fledglings um, and then the fledglings fatten up a little bit longer and then they undergo the migration themselves. So this Bartow Godwit fledgling who never really had never migrated before, was only five, six months old, flew 13 and a half thousand kilometers and it basically started traveling south with its peers um, and then once they got to around about New Caledonia, they all split off. And this poor bird overshot Australia and New Zealand and backtracked um, back to Tasmania to finish its migration off. So that's, yeah, the longest continuous flight uh, ever recorded by a bird ever. It was about 11 days, 13,500 kilometres. And that's a conservative 13,500 kilometres as well because the trackers that they use only pick up a fix every um, every day or two. If you've never seen one before, let me describe a bar-tailed godwit for you. It has long legs, which puts it in the wader category of shorebirds. Its average size is 38 centimetres, with female being slightly larger than males. This bird has mottled brown feathers on its wings and breast, with slightly lighter buff-coloured feathers below. It gets its name from its white tail, which has brown bar patterns on it. Under its wings is a dull white colour, and it has this lovely long and slightly upturned bill. It makes a call that sounds like ti-ti-ti. That was recorded by Nigel Jacket in Broome. It also makes a sharp kuwit alarm call. That was recorded by Seth Bodorel in Alaska. We've heard from other scientists weekend birder guests about the ethics of putting bands and trackers on wild birds. Jeremy says that the effort is worth it because the data from shorebird research is used to aid policy and action needed for their protection. Tracking technology over the last 20 or 30 years has evolved quite rapidly. There's different mechanisms that you can use to track birds. Uh, the simplest is literally just putting a small plastic leg flag on a bird and then it's got a uniquely ID'd um, number on that. And then you put that out, the bird goes about its business and then hopefully somebody sees that bird again, records the number and then they lodge it into a database called BirdMark. So that's the simplest way that we track birds. Um, and then the most complex way is going up to something like what we're using at the moment in XMouth, which is a microwave satellite tracker using something that's called Doppler effect. So if you've ever been standing next to a busy highway and you've heard a car approaching you and then goes past, you'll notice that the sound changes pitch. A higher pitch as it's approaching you and it's a lower pitch as it goes past. And that's because that car moving really fast is compressing its sound wave and then it stretches it as it goes past. So the satellite trackers that we use use exactly the same concept, but instead of using sound, they're using microwave frequency. And then there's a satellite that's traveling really, really fast. It's going about 25,000 kilometers an hour. And as it's traveling towards the microwave signal, that signal is being compressed 
And as it's traveling away from it, then that signal is being stretched out. So as the satellite stretches over, it can tell roughly where the bird is on the surface of the Earth based on that change in microwave frequency. Um, and that's a really useful piece of technology to use because it's very, very light and it doesn't use a lot of power. And it uses so little power that actually in a five gram package, you can put a solar panel and a microwave emitter on this one device, attach it to a bird, and then that will recharge um, over the course of a day or two and it will just keep working over and over and over again. So we're able to fix these microwave emitters onto birds and in the case of Bartow Godwit, these five gram devices only are one or two percent of the bird's body weight. Um, so it's very, very minimal impact, it's very unintrusive. We make like a teeny tiny little backpack out of Teflon tape, um, attach it around the bird's legs wraps around the back and then the tracker goes on the bird's back so that the solar panel is exposed. And we've been doing this with birds now for for quite a long time with sort of attachment techniques um, and we know that if we keep the weight to this minimum degree then it's very very low impact on them. So there's a few reasons why we want to know why these birds are moving and where they're traveling to. So first of all the migratory shorebirds are some of the most endangered species of birds on the planet. Um, and that is what we've worked out is because they're traveling through this area in, in China and Korea called the Yellow Sea. That part of the Yellow Sea in the last 30 years has gone through a huge amount of development. You can imagine all of these different provinces in China and Korea, and they're all trying to compete for um, economic advantage. And they're building all these reclamation projects. So they're building wharfs, they're building fish farms, and they're taking over this rich sediment which is being discharged by the Yellow River into this big gulf and that area is really really important stopover spot for these birds which are migrating. Uh, so for example the Bartow Godwit which we tagged in Exmouth flew six and a half thousand kilometers to then refuel in the Yellow Sea and they stayed there for six weeks um, refueling before they went on to breed. So this is a critical stopover point for these birds so they're able to undergo migration and be fully fueled and be in really good condition to then raise chicks. So for starters, putting these trackers on lets us know where these birds are staging in this process of this migration and therefore what areas might need to be protected, how they're adapting to this change. Uh, something that's really interesting that we found out about these Bartel Godwits is that they're now using novel intertidal mudflats that didn't exist 10 years ago. So given that so species like Bartow Godwit can live for 20, 30 plus years, these birds are potentially adapting to changes in habitat availability during the course of their lifespan. It's just really, really interesting to know what, um, what these animals are capable of. Around the world, people are involved in shorebird citizen science projects. These projects record data that is then used by scientists and policymakers to help shorebirds thrive in the wild. Here's how you can be part of the community effort in Australia. BirdLife runs the Australian component of what's called the Asian Waterbird Census. Um, and that is this idea that everybody is going to go out in January and we're going to count all of the shorebirds and all the waterfowl and all of the wetland birds that are in uh, the East Asian Australasian Flyway um, so we can get this idea of how they're tracking through time. So that's the main thing that we like to do is encourage people to get involved with this annual census. So if you were to hop right now onto the bird data page, sort of like eBird, except for bird life programs. So it's, any, it's something that anybody can contribute to. So if you were to hop right now onto the bird data portal, 
um, and then go and look through its various different shared sites and explored tabs, you'll be able to see that under the Shorebirds protocol, Australia has been broken up into about 2,500 different spots where you could go and count shorebirds and contribute to the Asian Waterbird Census. If you're already really experienced with migratory shorebirds and you would like to go out and do surveys or maybe you're already going to a wetland fairly regularly already in your normal birding activity, then maybe have a look at that shorebird protocol and work out what those census areas are and maybe you can do some counts just by yourself. The other thing that we do is these organized activities um, and that's when groups of people all go out and sort of smash a wetland in one day. So for example, in Western Australia, we have um, a really well-organized count, which we do in collaboration with the Peel Harvey Catchment Council, and that's for the Peel Yalgarup Ramsar area. And last year, we had nearly 100 people all go out at exactly the same time and do a census of the Ramsar area, and that will contribute towards the Asian Waterbird Census count, which then feeds back into being able to work out how these populations of birds are changing through time and then consequently whether they need to be listed and protected or not. There's counts like that going on all over Australia. So if you want to be involved in something like that, I would encourage you to get in touch with Australian Waiter Studies Group, Victorian Waiter Studies Group. If you're in Queensland, then the uh, Birds Queensland branch has a Waiter Special Interest Groups who coordinate their, their counts around Brisbane. So yeah, first I would start by go, getting in touch with your local bird watching group and seeing what they're already doing because there's probably something happening in your area, especially if you're in a major city, that you can tag on to. And that's a great way also, if you're new to shorebirds, to be exposed to people who already know the shorebirds well and, and get that information of how to, how to identify them. Well, friend, it sounds like you've got an opportunity to put your shorebird birdwatching skills to the test in January. I've put a link to this program in the show notes. Jeremy continues to devote his time to coordinating shorebird projects because of the story of what they go through. The migratory species go through this sort of gruelling migration in order to breed. And unlike other bird species which migrate, they do it all through muscle power. Though so you have marathon runners and you have ultramarathon runners and then you've got migratory shorebirds. And migratory shorebirds are flying continuously for well over a week, often nearly two weeks, when you start dealing with these bar-tailed godwits, um, which are undergoing these continuous migrations south. So I think I worked out previous record for migratory shorebird was about 12,500 kilometers. And that bird flapped its wings continuously for 5.6 million times. Um, so just this just sheer feat of endurance um, that these birds go through in order to do what kind of seems like a pretty ridiculous thing to be traveling all the way across the world to breed when there's birds in Australia which are quite happily chipping away being a resident shorebird species. The other thing that's really interesting about shorebirds is if you're a twitcher, there's a really large proportion of shorebird species which are vagrants. It's kind of like the world's greatest game of world's where's Wally going out on an intertidal mudflat or a wetland. You have thousands of sharp-tailed sandpiper and redneck stint and your job is to work out which one is a long-toed stint and which ones are rough and which one's a pectoral sandpiper. From a twitching birdwatching perspective, then shorebirds are a great species to go and boost some numbers or go challenge yourself with a little tricky puzzle. Many thanks to Jeremy and his team for the important work that they are doing for shorebirds. I now feel a bit more confident about identifying them in the wild, and it's definitely time to read up. 
I've been blown away by the number of people who have subscribed to the monthly letter. I can't wait to do our first monthly giveaway this week. Everyone who subscribes automatically goes into the running every month. And you can subscribe at weekendberta.com. I'm really grateful for our Weekend Birder community. Thanks so much for the love, everyone, and speak to you soon. <laughs>